Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Welcome to Group Text. I got a quick question. Does anyone else remember the mid to late 90s when you couldn't go anywhere without hearing today's guest ready for this 12 times platinum album, Pieces of You? Well, that is right. Today, I've got Jewel. How are you? Hi, how are you? I'm good. You're an amazing Grammy-nominated singer-songwriter, an actress, a mother, a mental health advocate, and you used to, as we all know, yodel with your family in Homer, Alaska. You, which we're going to get to, which touches my heart, also being a mental health advocate, just recently launched the Not Alone Challenge to raise awareness and funds for mental health resources. And we're going to get to this with a bidding war on celebrity items, including you writing a personal song for somebody. Jewel, welcome. Well, thank you. That was such a long hyphenated intro. I love it. That's isn't it? Well. Isn't it funny when people <laughs> do that and you're like, wow, I've done a lot. <laughs> I'm tired. I'm exhausted. <laughs> but we're going to get to the not alone challenge because, you know, dealing with mental health and depression is so important during the holidays where people can feel very isolated. It's true. Very but, important. But first... Did Pieces of You really come out in 1995? At least, maybe 94, but yeah, something like that. Can you believe it's been that long? Yeah, in some ways it feels like five minutes, in some ways it feels like 300 years. What, you know, when I was thinking back, what was so interesting to me was you really came onto the scene at, you know, during sort of, the end of the grunge wave, alt-rock was taking its place, front and center, hip-hop and rap were stronger than ever. And here you come, this little pretty blonde folk singer. Did you feel kind of like a fish out of water? I mean, I can just imagine you walking into the TRL studio and being like, why am I here? <laughs> when I uh, was discovered, I was homeless and there was a huge bidding war over me. I was offered a million dollar signing bonus as a homeless kid and I turned it down because I'd read a book about how the industry works and that it was a loan and that you make money basically on mechanicals and royalties, basically fractions of pennies. Yeah. So for me to pay back a million dollars out of fractions of pennies, the amount of albums I would have had to sold were astronomical. And I wanted to have a career, you know, I, I didn't want to like make a million dollars. I wanted to have a career. So I turned the money down and I took the biggest back end anybody had been given and just set about making what I hoped was a really honest record. I was very sober about the fact that, you know, despite there being this bidding war over me, I was nothing like what was happening in the grunge scene and grunge was king at the moment. And I was a really simple singer songwriter, um, that was in a lot of pain and was asking now what I don't want to kill myself. So now what? So all my songs were about that. I really felt that I had a place in culture because of that. It's just that where culture was 
you know, what grunge did was say, I'm, I don't feel good, which is a revolution. You know, it's amazing to go from eighties, like glam rock. And I'm a material girl to Nirvana saying, I feel like shit. It's so important, but you can only feel like crap so long until you kill yourself. And so I just felt like if I could hang on long enough for culture to start asking, all right, we're in pain. What do we do about it? I knew that I could have a shot and I just had to hang in there sort of till then. You brought up something really interesting just now, which I hadn't even thought about. So you're homeless. First of all, how did anyone find you? And I know this is going to seem like a really ridiculous question, but if you're homeless, how did they reach you? Did you have a PO box? Did you, how did you communicate? Um, I ended up homeless because I wouldn't have sex with a boss. And I went in for my paycheck the next day and he wouldn't pay me. And my landlord, I had been late so often in rent. He was like, I can't let you stay. So I started living in my car. I thought I would get another job and would end up back on my feet, but it just became this very vicious cycle. I had bad kidneys. I kept getting sick. I didn't have insurance. I took sick days. I kept getting fired from more jobs. I started having panic attacks. I was agoraphobic. My car got stolen. I was living in, I almost died in the emergency room parking lot because they wouldn't admit me because I didn't have insurance. And that's how I ended up homeless for over a year. It was a really transformational period where I learned so much about developing the tools that now are what we use in my youth foundation for mental health. Um, but I started singing in a local coffee shop to try and get off the street. No coffee shop would pay me to sing because grunge acts were getting signed. And now every coffee shop thought it was a, a site that <laughs> you could get signed in. And so they would make you pay them $200 to play. And I was like, no, you don't get it. I, I literally just need money. <laughs> and so I found a place going out of business. And I said, hey, you know, if you keep your doors open for one month and if I can start bringing people in, can I keep the door money and you'll keep the coffee and food? And we shook hands and the first time there was like two people and then four and then 12 and it just grew up over the course of, I don't know, several months um, until it was like people spilling out of this coffee shop and record labels heard about it. And so they came to see me sing. They had no idea I was homeless. Um, I remember buying some record executive a taco. I had no concept of an expense <laughs> account, like such a ding dong. And how about this guy letting me, damn it. What, what you said something earlier that's fascinating. So here you are. This little folk singer and you're blonde and cute and nobody at that point knows you're homeless, yet you knew enough to know that back end was important. How, who taught you this? How did you learn this? I was a voracious reader. I moved out at 15 and I felt like, I don't know, knowledge might keep me safe. You know, I was reading a lot of philosophy and the idea of nature versus nurture and if I had bad nurture, would I ever get to know my nature? And was happiness a learnable skill? Was it a teachable skill? And so those are the things I was thinking about as I moved out at 15. And those were continued conversations I was having with myself while I was homeless to, to figure out how am I going to turn my life around? How am I going to stop having panic attacks? How am I going to stop shoplifting? I had learned how to be happy while I was homeless by developing skills, by being developing practicable skills that I felt like were leading to real changes in my panic, agoraphobia, shoplifting. So by the time record labels came, I was feeling, and though I was homeless, I felt powerful because I was learning how to be happy despite a really bad circumstance. 
and I was a reader. And so once labels started coming to me, I just went to the library and went to the business section and found a tiny category of music business. And there was one book called everything you need to know about the music business. And so I rented it and checked it out and read it. And it was very informative. It taught me about all the contracts, about mechanicals, royalties, everything. It, it, it's, uh, you should be teaching it, it is what you should be doing right now. I mean, God, did you always know how smart you were? Cause you're, I'm just, we're five minutes in and I'm like, you're brilliant. Oh, I didn't. I was dyslexic. Um, I moved schools twice a year. I lived in 22 different homes between eight and 18. I uh, was in a series of like, you know, my dad was abusive. My mom left. So I was just a very downtrodden, very dejected woman with very little self-worth, but was incredibly stubborn really hopeful that I could learn what happiness was, I guess maybe arrogant enough to think I could do it. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> Something else I didn't know that I found out is you went to Interlochen. Explain to people what Interlochen is because it's a big deal. Yeah. So I move out at 15 in Alaska. I'm paying rent. I have like $400 a month rent to pay. Very hard as a 15-year-old. I had multiple jobs, no car, hitchhiking. One of the jobs I get is cleaning a building. A dance teacher comes from out of state. And I said, hey, if I clean your studio for free, would you let me take your dance workshop for two weeks? And he said, sure. Turns out I'm a terrible dancer. (laughs) But he found out I was a singer and he came to see me sing in a local pub one night. And he was like, you're a great singer. He goes, I'm a teacher at this fine arts school called Interlochen. And I was like, great. (laughs) You know, in my head, I'm like, I'm trying to get rent money. Like, I don't know what this has to do with me. And he said, I think you're talented. I think I could help you get a scholarship. And I was like, come again? That sounds like a free thing. So he got me the application and I applied. I had to sing classical music, which, you know, was a very foreign thing to me. But I ended up getting a $5,000 scholarship but I still needed to raise $10,000 in about six weeks. Well, amazingly, these six women and Homer took me under their wing and they were like, you can raise money. I was like, you're full of shit. And they're like, we're going to teach you. I was like, let's do it. And they were like, you know, could you sing by yourself? I'd only ever sung with my dad. I'd never done my own. I didn't write yet. I didn't, I, I barely sang lead. Um, And so I decided to do my first solo show. It was all Cole Porter songs, which apparently there's a gay guy in me dying to get out. And they taught me how to go to businesses and get items to auction. And so we gathered up all these items and they basically taught me how to do it. And in one night, my little town raised $10,000 and I got to go to Interlochen, which is a very, very prestigious art school. Beyond prestigious. Was it full on culture shock when you walked in there? And to you be no idea. And to be <laughs> surrounded by all these other incredibly talented people. Yeah. You know, I was raised on a homestead in Alaska. I was pretty feral. I mean, (laughs) we had an outhouse, no running water. We only ate what we could kill or can. And I was living on my own at this point. I grew up in bars. I was a tough kid. I 
had enough money to get to Detroit. I think I took a Greyhound bus up to school. I think I hitchhiked the rest of the way to the, where the road was to the school turnoff. I remember wearing a leather jacket, walking down the street and people pointing at me. And I was like, that's probably not a good sign. Why are people pointing at me? A woman comes up to me, a teacher, and she goes, you need to go to the dean's office. And I was like, the hell did I do? I literally just walked down the street. <laughs> I just got here. I get into the dean's office and he goes, what are you doing with the knife? And I was like, what are you talking about? And he goes, the knife. I had, I had a skinny knife on my belt, which was very normal where I'm from. Right. Everybody has a skinny knife on their belt. Well, they thought I was going to come stab up the place or something. It's very frowned upon in the finer establishments down in the lower 48. So <laughs> he was like, where are you from? And I was like, Alaska. And he goes, give me the knife. <laughs> that poor Dean, you know, I didn't realize I still had to have book money. I still had to have food money. So I had to get a job. So I was the only kid there that was actually working a job off campus to try and pay just to go to the school. What was their reaction when you opened your mouth? And this voice came out. It wasn't really like that. Um, it was classical music, which I wasn't trained in. My teacher said she really liked my voice. And I remember being shocked because everybody there was like studying to be a Broadway singer and opera singer. And they were trained. I was like a bar kid from Alaska. I didn't know how to read music. I had to learn everything by ear. Um, it was definitely a, a difficult road. And I fell in love with sculpture. And so I figured this was my only year there. So I double majored and I double minored and I skipped lunch. And the dean, he calls me back and he was like, you can't take two majors and two minors and skip lunch. I was like, the hell I can't. I was like, there's no way I'm coming back here next year. You have to let me take advantage of this. Like this, this is probably my only chance that I'll get to be around such talented people and such talented teachers. And so bless his heart. He let me do that crazy schedule. And then the next year I got a full scholarship to come back. That, I mean, it's just, it, it's a mind blowing story. Um, then you get your recording contract and who will save your soul comes out and blows up. Were you prepared for that at all? Or was it like such a whirlwind once that happened? You know, who will save your soul is the first song I ever wrote. I wrote that because for spring break, you weren't allowed to stay at Interlochen and I couldn't afford to go home to Alaska. And so I started to hitchhike and hobo by train across the country and make up lyrics. And that's what got me writing songs. And the, the first one was who will save your soul. Um, I had no idea that would become a single or my very first single. The record failed for two years. It was a complete failure. It sold really? 2000 copies in two years. It looked like I had made a pretty dumb choice not taking the money. I had only signed the record deal if I made myself a promise that my number one job was to learn how to be happy. My number two job was to learn how to be an artist um, and that I would always choose art over fame. And so I tried to navigate my career according to these North Star decisions. And it was rough. Like I turned down being on the real world at the beginning of my career, which really upset my label. They were like, no, you don't get it. Like this is a launch into stardom. And I was like, I don't think it's good for art. I think it's good for fame. That goes against my ethos. Like, I mean, <laughs> can you imagine dealing with me? Well, it looked like it was all terrible mistakes. It failed. I start making a second album. 
And then Dylan, Bob Dylan wants me to tour with him. So I quit making the album. I go tour and he starts mentoring me every night. And he was like, you have to keep going. You have to keep going. You have to be solo acoustic and you just can't give up. And I was like, you know what? If Bob Dylan's the only one that likes me, so be it. And then things slowly started to turn around. And I think two years in, um, Who Will Save Your Soul finally took off. But for a label to have stuck with me that long, it was because I was so cheap. I didn't cost any money. Nobody could drop me. You know, nobody was like, I didn't have this million dollar bounty over my head. And so that ended up really paying off. And then once the record took off, it was started selling a million albums every week. And it, it was meteoric. It was an insane amount of fame. And at that time with MTV, videos were so important. It was sort of the time when these major A-list directors were coming in to do these wildly expensive videos. What was your first day on your first video shoot like? Um, I wanted everything to be very authentically me. I was having a very hard time adjusting going from Alaska to living in the lower 48 with no open space and nature. I always had a lot of quiet and in the city, I didn't have much quiet. And so I wanted this <laughs> video to be filmed in the bathroom because I loved hanging out in the bathroom because it's where I got to be alone. There was no record label. There was no promoter. There was no radio guy. Anywhere I went, I would just go in the bathroom and I would just shut the stall and I would just like, like, oh. And so it became like in a weird place, like my little altar in the world. And so the first album was just about everything I had seen in bathrooms from trannies to drug use to you name it. And so that's what the video was about. It had to be bizarre the first time you turn on the TV and there's your video. It was a trip because it was like Tupac and Soundgarden. And, you. and then my dorky little bathroom video. <laughs> <laughs> well, you certainly hit a nerve. Um, so it's been nine years since your last album and you have a new one coming out or that is already coming out, Free Will and Woman. And your life is so incredibly different than it was. And you've become a mother and you've been through relationships and publicly relationships and divorce. Um, you know, it's all different financially, romantically and experientially. How did you approach this album. I mean, how different is it all these years later? And as a mature adult, we're around the same age. Looking back, I know how I approach my work so vastly differently. Yeah, I, you know, again, my number one goal was to figure out how to be a happy whole human, not a human full of holes. Like that's what I wrote. In my yeah, well, that's I, that's, I shop to fill the hole in my soul. So we're a little different there. <laughs> Um, so I took like a lot of breaks in my career, like at the height of hands, I quit for two years because that much fame made me really unhappy. And I had to be willing to let it go because it made me miserable. And so I had to retailer my career in a way that worked for me. And that meant less fame. I think I'm, <laughs> I told my label, my new career plan is to kill my momentum between every album. And they were like, come again, <laughs> worst idea ever. And I was like, no, I think it's a good idea for me as a human. I yeah, won't have a mental breakdown. Not a great idea for the bottom line. Yeah. Hard idea for the bottom line, but the right idea for me. Um, and so this last seven years was just recovering from a divorce and learning how to be a single mom and learning to heal in a whole new way and develop a whole new set of tools and skills for myself. And then finally, it was time to make an album. And I wanted it to be who I was now. 
I'm a 48 year old woman. I feel like I'm at the peak of my abilities, of my writing abilities, of my vocal powers. And I feel, I feel empowered. I fought so life to live a life that allows me freedom. And I wanted it to have that sense and that feel. So this is the first album I've ever written from scratch. It's very hard. I wrote 200 songs to get the 12 I like, uh, because I wanted it to have this unapologetic, deeply grounded, rooted place that I fought so fucking hard to get to as a female in this business and in this life. How long did it take you to get to the 12? I mean, how long ago did you start legitimately writing this album? I wrote it and had it produced before COVID. And I want to say the process was two years of writing. I wrote and wrote and wrote and wrote and wrote. Um, and then recorded and then COVID hit and I decided not to release it. I waited. So all told, it really took quite a while. Do you ever have any desire to write for other people or do you write something you're like, this isn't going to work for me, but it'll be great for Katy Perry. Not often. I've been asked to write a couple times. I'm kind of ornery because I guess, cause I'm ornery. Um, I remember an A&R reached out for Leanne Rhymes. They liked uh, Standing Still a lot. And they wanted me to write something like Standing Still for Leanne. And I was like, I don't want to write Standing Still for her. I was like, I want to hear her do like that old school country in a new way with that yodel in her voice. And the A&R was like, yeah, I'm the A&R. Fuck off. And I was like, <laughs> noted. <laughs> I will. So my vision just wasn't always like the same thing. I had another song that uh, Josh Groban's A&R reached out for, you know, I'm sure they didn't even know the artists didn't know, but they didn't like the names that I had chosen Salvador Dali and his wife. Uh, they didn't like the names. They thought they were too quirky and wanted me to replace the names. And I was like, <laughs> nah, I don't care. <laughs> don't record it. <laughs> don't do it. <laughs> it it's it's just so fascinating for me to especially hear about singer songwriters and their process because so much comes from the inside were there days where you were too happy to write I know that sounds crazy but I grew up with my mom touring with Mac Davis for people who don't know he was one of the great singer songwriters he wrote in the ghetto for Al- Elvis and an amazing performer And then he kind of just stopped writing. And my mom said, Mac, what is wrong with you? And he had gotten married, you know, to the correct woman that time. And he said, I can't write when I'm happy. Hmm. Do you find that? Are you better at writing? Are you more inspired when you're unhappy to sort of vent all these things or happy to be able to share all these things? I write well happy, but it was something I tried to be very cognizant of. A lot of writers can't write unless they're high. A lot of writers can't write unless they're miserable or embroiled in some intense, terrible thing that they just need writing to save them from. That always just seemed so dangerous and frightening to me that I really wanted to make sure that I developed the muscle where I wrote all the time. Um, I actually write better, happier, I think. I remember the sad times just fine. (laughs) I need to write a sad song. (laughs) You're like, I can bring this back up. Yeah. So here we are. You're 48. You're going to be out promoting the album. I assume that you're going to start touring or at least do a small tour. Um, how, how does it feel that you realize, even though it's smaller venues, 
that you're suddenly competing for dollars with like BTS, you know, who are all in their mid twenties or Billie Eilish, who I'm not even sure is 20 yet. It's, <laughs> it, I know I personally see things and it's just like, oh God, you know, I have to hike up the skirt and go to the gym and stop eating for a minute to even be considering doing this, not even depending yet on my abilities. Um, I toured this summer, uh, train and I went out, we were in amphitheaters. I didn't know what it would be like. I hadn't been on, I mean, I'd, I'd been singing and doing corporate gigs, but I haven't done proper tours in seven years. Um, and you don't just give up seven years without paying a price, right? right? I, I chose being a mom and growing and healing. And so I was curious what the price would be. The price definitely, you know, is visibility, ticket sales, things like that. But it felt so good to walk on stage and realize I was better than when I quit. Uh, not that I quit, just when I, last time I stepped on stage, I was better and I felt sexier and I felt more in my body and I felt like my voice was better and the effect I was able to have on the audience. And that was a nice feeling that I, I didn't know if that would be the case. Um, you can build back ticket sales if you want them. You can build those things back just with work, right? You just have to throw work at it but you can't build back that talent component. Um, And so again, it was just fun for me. It was fun to be 48 and just feel empowered to be able to, you know, in our business, we don't see many women our age doing this in an empowered way. Um, You see a lot of people trying to, I don't know, I guess pretend we're younger or compete with younger. And I don't feel like that. I just feel like my own horse. I feel like I'm on my own race and I feel like I have a lot of leg or, you know, a lot of race left in me. I'm I'm very competitive. I'm very ambitious. I feel like I still have race left in me. So we'll see. <laughs> Did you take your son on tour with you? Yeah, my son toured with me. He plays drums. And so he played drums on You Were Meant For Me. And he'd sing every night. It was just the sweetest. It made me love touring again. Did he enjoy touring? Yeah, he loves it so much that it's probably the only reason I'll go out next summer is because he made me love it again. It was so sweet. Yeah, because I was I obviously was a child who was brought around tours and sets and all that. And I... If it gives you any feeling of solace when you question it, I can make three meals, eat a day, breakfast, lunch, and dinner, easily off a craft service table. So <laughs> I know that I can walk into a gas station mini mart and be able to create a meal. So <laughs> there you go. You'll never, you'll never go hungry. <laughs> um, so all these artists now are starting to write these musicals based on your life, on their lives. Now you have such a compelling story. You know, I'm already thinking Les Mis. Do you have any desire to do that? I'm thinking about Jagged Little Pill and some of these other ones. I've kicked around the idea. I just haven't settled on the right thing. It's such a weird story to tell because every five years was like an entire lifetime that I wouldn't even know honestly where to focus, you know? So you and I both are mental health advocates. Um, and you've been very open about your mental health struggles. You have already came up in, today and said about being agoraphobic and coming from an abusive relation, uh, relationship. Um, uh, what was your journey? When did you realize I need to do something different because what I'm doing isn't working. For me, it was moving out at 15. Um, I realized I could live in a cabin with a guy that wasn't very nice to me, my dad, or I could just go live in a cabin. 
But before I did that, I knew that statistically things don't work out well for kids like me. The odds of living when you move out at 15 are very low. And so I had to have some kind of plan in place that made me think I could change those odds. And so I gave it a lot of thought and realized that as much as I had a genetic inheritance that gave me a predisposition towards diabetes or heart disease, I had an emotional inheritance that gave me a predisposition toward abuse or substance abuse. And I didn't want to be a statistic. So I had to have something, some kind of plan in place that made me think I could not be a statistic. And for me, it was looking at this idea of emotional English, you know, this emotional language I was raised with, and could I learn a new one? There was no school. And so what did I think I could do to learn? I called it vocabulary, new emotional vocabulary pieces at a time. And then this idea of nature versus nurture of if my nurture was so bad, would I get to know my nature? And I was peeling an orange one day. And for some reason, the image just struck me of this peel was my nurture. It was how I responded to my nurture. I was suspicious. I was mistrustful. I was highly dependent. And that formed this shell. But that was just my shell. It was my nurture. It was my, my interacting with the world around me, the nurture. But my nature was the orange. And I spent very little time being curious about the inside of me. And so I called it going down and in. I decided to dedicate my life to going down and in and learning skills that helped me bring my nature up out through my nurture. Um, and so like when I was homeless, what I was learning and teaching myself about shoplifting and replacing behaviors and dilated and contracted states, um, all they really helped me. And I just kept learning and adding tools that, that I came up with for myself. And then I'd say about 20 years ago, I wanted to see if they would work for other people without therapy because I didn't have access to therapy as a kid, as a 15-year-old. I didn't have the money. I didn't have any traditional support. And what are kids like me supposed to do? Just sorry, you don't get to be happy because you don't have money to go to therapy. I was like, God, that's intolerable. So we founded Inspiring Children. We work with kids with extreme anxiety or suicidal ideation or just you know adverse economic backgrounds. And we give them skills without therapy. And to great success, we've never lost a kid in 20 years, I'm very proud to say. Um, and our stats are incredible. And it's all because it's very skill-based where we're just looking at neurology. How can we starve an old habit? How can you start a new habit? And will your life change? And it turns out the answer is yes. Don't you wish you had that when you were younger? I do. That's what made me do it is if what took me 40 years to learn, somebody else can learn quicker. Like, let's do that. I, I know that obviously mental health became a hot topic during the pandemic. And I think one of the good things, there are very, very few that came out of the pandemic was that talking about mental health is no longer taboo. And that's a huge step forward, as you well know. Are you seeing an active difference in how many kids are reaching out how it's not such a, a horrible thing to say, I need mental health help? Young kids today are incredibly savvy about words like triggers, trauma triggers, self-care, anxiety. It's kind of more an older generation that's, I think, still a little uncomfortable talking about mental health issues. It's why we started the hashtag not alone challenge was to get 
businessmen, athletes, young, old, everybody talking about the fact that we all have brains. And so all of us are going to have some kind of mental, emotional issue, whether it's just anxiety or who knows what. Um, but to me, the real focus has to be on skills. We have to stop raising awareness and meet that awareness with skills that work. Meditation won't change your life. Like newsflash, it won't change your life. It will help you be consciously present. Being consciously present won't change your life. It just helps you be present with whatever's happening. And it might be that you're present with anxiety. And so to change your life, you have to have skills to practice because we live in a world of action. You have to start behaving differently, doing things differently. And so I think the mental health community has to do a much better job at coming up with real, real tools. We can't just raise awareness and then not give people anything. And so that's really been the focus of this mental health campaign. The hashtag not alone challenge is not only raising awareness, raising funds, but scaling proven tools digitally that can work digitally uh, without therapy. Not that therapy is bad. It's just not everybody has access to it. Right. Do you talk to your son openly about mental health? I talk to my son openly. I've never hid. I've never hidden from him that my father suffered from depression and ended up committing suicide. And I have made sure that we have those very open and honest discussions. Your son might be a little too young to use the, the adult language with it, but have you started having that open dialogue of talk to me? Absolutely. Um, he also knows what I do for a job, which primarily is all in mental health for the right. last seven years. Um, as well as, you know, a great indicator of healthy adults is being able to anchor into the good and bad parts of a long history arc. So helping your children understand that, you know, great uncle Gary got in a drunken rage and burned down the barn is just as important as telling him, you know, aunt Sally won an Academy award what they found really helps anchor kids psychologically in is realizing that families continue across many, many ups and downs over a long period of time because it helps them when they're feeling down or they do something wrong to go, no, but we still make it. We still survive. That's the conversation I always have with my son. Not alone challenge. Hashtag not alone challenge. Talk to me. What can we do? <laughs> Where can we find it? How can we help? Yes. Well, I would love you to join. I would I'm, love you to be one of the people that that joins us. I'm already planning on doing that. Thank you. It's 30 second videos. Yeah. If you go online, you know, you'll still people or you check up the look up the hashtag, you'll see people posting their own issues or just supporting the cause. And then driving traffic to an auction website where you can bid on amazing things like, oh my gosh, there's well, so much stuff on there. You can write it, you'll write a song. That is one of them. I will write a personalized song to the highest bidder. So it could be about your dog or your wife or your child. I'll be writing that song. It's a great gift. It's pretty fun. So I will, I will, I'll support yours, but then you have to support mine. We'll talk about that later. Checking out Dee Dee Hirsch, uh, mental good, health I services think. and suicide prevention. I have to get that plug in or I'm on the board. They'll come and like hang me up by my toenails. Well, that's the great thing about this challenge is we have Lady Gaga's foundation. Yep. We have so many foundations coming together. This isn't a zero sum game of us competing. It's us really joining our resources together to make sure everybody knows where to go to get help. It's really interesting you brought that up because I'm finding that much more since the pandemic. And I we have done things again with Lady Gaga's foundation. We've just done something with real beauty. 
that everyone in that mental health community is coming together. And I think that's so important. There's so many ways to heal. There's not one path to healing. And so African-Americans and people of color have to have systems that work for them. And they're probably going to be different than systems that work for me. We have to have variety of services out there. And everyone needs to remember, which is starting up nationally, if it isn't already national, I know it's already going here in California and a few other places, 988, which is the crisis hotline. Rather than calling 911, you now call 988. Before I let you go, let's go back to the shallow end where I'm really happy. <laughs> like I said, I'm very, I can swim in the deep. I'm happier walking with a cocktail in the shallow, shallow end. <laughs> I want to do with you a 1995 pop music lightning round because pieces came out in 95. Um, can you remember other than your own, what was your favorite song in 95? I don't remember. I've always been bad at pop culture, even when I was in it. Oh, know? good. Then this will be super fun. I'm going <laughs> to give you the names of two artists who were on the Billboard Top 100 chart that year. And you need to tell me with whom you would rather sing a duet with or better yet have a really good piece of gossip on. Okay. Okay, you ready? Bonus points again for gossip. Mariah or Madonna? <laughs> um, I think Madonna would have more juice. Just epic stories. I feel like Madonna's stories are next level Craytown. As you would rather sing a duet with her or Mariah? rather sing a duet with Mariah. Okay. Madonna can't sing. We all know this. Duet with Janet Jackson or Cheryl Crow? Gosh, I love Cheryl. She's so amazing. Um, either. I'd be very happy with either. Okay. I'll give you a split on that one. That's the last split you get. Nice try being so nice. So annoying. <laughs> okay. Notorious B.I.G. or Coolio? Boy, that's a really tough one, too. I'm going to go B.I.G. Really? Yep. Interesting. Cause, yeah. Yeah, that's interesting because, uh, you know, Coolio, they had the Gangster's Paradise. Yeah, it was a great song. Uh, the song that could have spoken to you. That's true. Brian Adams or Bon Jovi? Um, For singing? Yeah, who you would want to do a duet with? I'd do Brian Adams. Hootie, Hootie and the Blowfish or Naughty by Nature? I actually have a duet with Darius Rucker right now on my album. So it's just like a natural genius album plug. Listen to Not Alone or No More Tears by me and Darius Rucker. Look at that. Walked right into a plug without <laughs> even trying. Last one. I don't even know the name of my song. That's okay. You know, there's a lot going on in your brain. I can barely remember my son's name half the time. TLC <laughs> or Boys to Men? I'd say TLC. Very nice. Oh, it's a girl group. Jewel? Let's plug everything one more time. Free Wheelin' Woman, your foundation, Inspiring Children Foundation, and the hashtag Not Alone Challenge. Yes, thank you so much. It was such a treat to talk with you. Thank you so much. Ahura Media Production.